Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe, and uh, we are continuing our time in the Word together with our study through the book of Jude. If you could turn your Bibles to the book of Jude, it is the second to last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Short book, like we've said often, neglected in the church, especially in present days, but an important book for us. As you're turning there, I'm going to read for you the first four verses of this book, just by kind of way of reminder, introduction to set the stage again for why it is this book was written and what it is trying to accomplish in our lives. Jude verse 1 says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, the book of of Jude is a book of warnings. It's a book specifically with a warning about false teaching. And that's what we've been looking at over the past uh, month or, or two. We've been talking about how false teachers use their words, how false teachers deceive with their lives, how they take advantage of people in the church, how they're really kind of like these spiritual scammers. And it's not just those with false doctrine, right? Those who are teaching things that contradict what the Bible says, but it's also those who say the right thing, but live in a way that contradicts the truth. But our hope here is that it won't simply be a mental exercise, what do I mean by that? You, you can think about false teaching in terms of just kind of analyzing people and um, understanding whether or not they're saying what is right or wrong. But what we're trying to do is to contend for the faith once and for all, delivered for the saints for a good reason for you. You see, we as the pastors of Zoe, we want this church to be full of discerning people who are not tossed to and fro by the winds, by the circumstances, by any YouTube video sent your way, that instead of being fooled or scammed or used, you would have this deep-seated stability in your life, a stability in your faith that it wouldn't just be, what's the new thing on the block this month to make me feel like all is lost or to make me feel confused and shaken, that your commitment to the Lord would make you the kind of person who can rest secure in any and every circumstance because you have been called and loved and taught by God. That's our hope for you. And so that leads us then to our passage today, which is in verses 14 through 16 of this book. And let's read it together. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to you this afternoon and we look into your word, Lord, we pray that you would help us 
Lord, your word is given so that we might be equipped for every good work and that we might also be made mature more and more into the image of Christ. And I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in your church here at Zoe, that we might be matured according to the truth. Help to guard us, God, against the 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 teachings and the teachers and, and just the, the winds of the culture and the time that want to push us away from devotion to Christ and to other things. And we ask, Lord, that ultimately we as a church would be about you because you alone are God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever met a godly person? Someone that you would describe as just being godly. And maybe you have a different definition for what that means, but you probably have a sense when I say the word godly, what you're looking for. R.C. Chapman was a lawyer in England in the early 1800s who was gripped by the gospel at a young age. Around 20 years old, he heard the gospel preached from a pastor in his neighborhood, and he, he just believed. And, and he began to be changed, and he was convicted over his sin, and he began to want to minister with his life to the poor. And so he decided to become a preacher. He would turn away from this life of luxury, this life of doing the law, and instead to use his life to serve God. The story is told of how he used to do open-air preaching. And a local grocer, right, a guy who owns a store selling groceries, he would harass him and abuse him and try to stop him because he didn't like the message that R.C. Chapman was preaching. And particularly, it's not, it wasn't just the message, it was the location, right? He didn't want him preaching outside of his grocery store to kind of mess with the people who were coming. He didn't want this to be what it was known for, that area. And so he was harassing R.C. Chapman. And one day, R.C. was in his home and he was visited by a wealthy cousin. He wanted to see what kind of life and ministry his strange cousin was up to, right? Everyone in the family knew that R.C. had turned away from the life of luxury and was living this kind of life of poverty, ministering to people. He came to visit him to see what kind of life he and the people who depended on him were living. And he saw in his household an empty cupboard. And he was like, dude, this isn't, this is, you're like starving here. Like I need to do something about it. Kind of in a guilt of his own, he insisted that he was going to make an order, a large order to kind of provide for the food needs of R.C. and his companions who were part of the church at that time. R.C. Chapman agreed, but he said he would only do it, he would only receive it on the condition that he got to choose where the order was made. So his cousin got the name of the store he wanted him to go to. He went over to the store owner who knew that this would be a blessing to the store because of the uh, just the large order he was going to make. And he gave the grocer the address of the person who would be receiving the order, R.C. Chapman. And when the store owner heard that it was to be delivered to R.C. Chapman, he was shocked. Because this was, of course, the same store owner who had harassed and abused and attacked R.C. for so long. And visibly affected by the fact that Chapman had asked for this good thing to be done towards him, he began to cry and he explained to his cousin, he said, I have heard of such things being done, but I never thought they really were. It was only last week at an open-air meeting that I spat on Mr. Chapman's face. Have you ever met a godly person, someone who just is different than what you expect. In continuing our study through the book of Jude, we come to a section that can really be summed up as a passage about godliness and ungodliness. And when it comes to the idea of false teachers and false teaching, 
what's going to help us contend for the faith, what's going to help us discern, what's going to help us be stable in the truth is knowing the difference between godliness, ungodliness, and then, of course, turning away from the ungodly towards God himself. And so we're going to break up this passage into three parts, one for each verse that we've read. We're going to see the prophecy, we're going to see the profanity, and finally we're going to see the produce of false teachers or the picture of them. First, we're going to see the prophecy, which is verse 14. It shows us the need for godliness. You can look with me again at the book. Jude says, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now Jude moves into this section and he quotes from a man named Enoch. And um, it's important who Enoch is. It's important to understand these words. But kind of before we get there, we need to do a little bit of legwork to understand this passage. Now this passage has had a lot of interest in the history of the church. This passage has had a lot written about it, this verse in particular. And the reason is the source of Jude's quote. Uh, most scholars believe that Jude here quoted from a book that we call First Enoch, okay? Um, First Enoch was a book that was well-known. It was around in the early uh, church and before. It was something that was well-known by Jewish people. And this book was circulated, but it was never considered part of the canon of Scripture by Jews or by Christians. It was never considered to be something that was divinely inspired by God. We don't know exactly when this book was written. We don't know exactly who wrote the book even, but we do know that portions of it existed in various languages and at various times up until the point of Jude and beyond. And so what makes it interesting is that this book, First Enoch, like I said, is a book that nobody thinks is Scripture. Jewish people... Other Christians, people in the ancient church, no one believes it is Scripture. And yet here, Jude, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, whose book is part of Scripture, he quotes from a book that we don't really think is inspired. And so from the early church, people have wondered why it is that Jude did this. Was it because the false teachers really liked this book and he wanted to kind of quote from their own um, ammo, so to speak, use their own weapons against them? Was it because he himself thought it should be part of Scripture even though it wasn't? What is the issue? So we need to deal with this briefly. Is there a problem? Does this mean that Jude believed First Enoch should be part of the Bible? If you don't have it, do we need to go, like, uh, you know, staple it in? Does it mean that there's something in First Enoch that we need to know apart from the Scriptures that we have? Well, the answer most simply is, of course, no. There is no problem. First of all, the question of whether we need some information contained in First Enoch has already been answered long ago in the church. There was some debate, and people held various opinions, but from the earliest point of time in the church, when people began to recognize the canon of Scripture, they agreed that First Enoch was not part of this list of books. And then secondly, what do we need to know about First Enoch? What we do need to know from it is contained right here in this text where Jude quotes, because Jude is inspired by God, at least this part of First Enoch relates something that is true and that is right. And so while this doesn't mean that the whole book of First Enoch is inspired, it does mean that these words that we are reading in verse 14 and 15 are true words of Enoch and that Jude wrote them down for our benefit in the scriptures. This is what you need to know about First Enoch, right here in what Jude says. And what else the Bible says about Enoch? Well, that's also what we need to know. So having addressed that just briefly, we need to ask the more important question to me and hopefully to you, which is what 
did Jude want to communicate by quoting from the prophecy of Enoch? The words are important, but so is the man. And so we need to know what the Bible says about Enoch himself. If you turn with me all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, I'm going to find out what the Bible has to say about who this man Enoch was. And if you're already familiar with it, that's good. But if you're not, this will be a good um, kind of study of this biblical figure. Genesis chapter 5, all the way back, pretty soon after the fall, there is a list. The generations of Adam, those descendants of Adam and Eve, who are from the line of Seth. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Enoch, but what it does tell us is interesting. And we find most of it here in Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11. Genesis 5, we can read, starting in verse 21, after a number of different descendants are listed, we get to Enoch. And it says this in Genesis 5, 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, uh, famous for being the oldest man in scripture. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now look at Hebrews 11, verse 5. You can flip all the way to the front of your Bibles. And if you can't get there so fast, you can uh, use the search feature on your phone. But Hebrews 11, verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. He was commended as having pleased God. This is it. This is all the Bible tells us about Enoch, and it's really all we need to know to understand what Jude is saying here. It's short, but it's significant. If you go back to Jude, Jude says Enoch was the seventh from Adam. If you're doing the math, Enoch was born before Adam ever died. It's kind of interesting, just a side fact. But about 60 years after Adam's death, Enoch, who walked with God, was taken up by God. He never died. Why? Because God was pleased with him. He's someone who knew God, and God knew him. And so Enoch appears very early in the history of humanity, and he is the epitome of a person who had a real relationship with God in a fallen and sinful world. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. And rather than see death, he was taken by God. It is an amazing fact. And so we need to recognize that Enoch is a man who was known for being godly. He was a man who understood how to seek God, how to please God despite the sin around him. And that's kind of the second thing we need to make sure we get here in verse 14. Enoch was godly, but the people that Jude is warning about, the false teachers who are in and around the church and always are in and around the church seeking to do damage to the faith, well, they are not godly. There's a contrast being made. That's what the prophecy of Enoch reveals. Read it again, verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all. And you can stop right there. This prophecy, this this statement that Jude makes about what Enoch said and about God coming to judge with ten thousands of his holy ones, it makes the strongest contrast. There is such a thing as being holy and godly and right. But false teachers are the opposite. Who are the holy ones? They're most likely angels. But that's the point Jude is making. 
this prophetic judgment from the godly on the ungodly applies to all those who teach falsely in the church. You see, false teachers may be a lot of things. They may be winsome and handsome and friendly and smart and sophisticated, but what they never are is godly. Never. They are under judgment because what they are missing is the very thing you cannot afford to miss. They are missing God himself. Now, this might seem to be the most obvious thing, but I imagine that if Christians, if churches would just heed this truth about the godly and the ungodly, they would be in a much healthier spiritual place. It's kind of disturbing if you go out and look at the church landscape and churches are looking for pastors. Now, they just kind of assume you got to be a guy who has a relationship with God, but really what they're looking for is all the other things. See, the people you ought to listen to, the people you ought to imitate, the people you ought to follow are those who seek to know God, to please God, to serve God. To put it another way, they are the people who actually care about God himself. You know, there's a show that um, Trish and I have liked to watch over the years, and it's pretty popular. It comes from across the pond, so to speak. It's called The Great British Bake Off. You guys know what I'm talking about. You don't have to raise your hands, but I, I know you guys watch it. One of the judges on the show, later seasons of the show, is a woman named Prue, okay? And uh, she has one of the best lines when she is judging people's bakes. If it doesn't taste good, no matter what else is going on, no matter what it looks like, no matter how sophisticated or complex it is, this is what she'll always say. She'll say, not worth the calories. You get that, right? No matter what the specific competition is, no matter what the challenge, no matter how good something looks or how pleasant the, the organization of this cake, there is one thing a baked good is supposed to do before anything else, and that is to taste good. And if it doesn't, it's not worth the calories. It's completely failed. And I think this is what we need to see here. Jude is helping us remember that if there is one thing that the church exists for, it is so that we might be about God. We know that, we kind of. We, we, we talk about the church as the house of God, the people of God. And yet so often in the church, it fails to be the case. The Bible tells us in Micah 6, 8, What does the Lord require of you, O man, but that you seek justice and you love mercy and you walk humbly with your God? But if we aren't about God, if we are somehow missing God himself, if we are all sorts of other things, sincere, bold, bombastic, gentle, welcoming, fancy, whatever, if we aren't actually about knowing and pleasing God, then a church is not worth the calories. And so be careful what kind of church you go to and be careful of what kind of teachers you follow. Godliness matters. Now, there are a couple of application points we should glean from this seemingly small statement and verse. First, the knowledge of judgment is essential for the godly. See, what Enoch reminds us of is that the godly have always known that there is judgment. Like I said, Enoch lived before Adam even died. But just get that in your minds for a moment, how crazy that is. Okay, he's living, he's lived 300 years or so, and his great, 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 great grandfather is the first man who has ever created. He's still hanging out, right? He probably learned from Adam certain things. He doesn't even, I'm not sure he's ever seen someone die besides getting murdered because we know there were some murders in the line of Cain. He's living early on, and yet he's also living in a time of great sin. And Enoch knows that even though God just made the world, 
He's going to judge the world. But no matter what, God will judge the ungodly and the sinners when he comes in power with his angels. Why? Because God himself is holy. He spoke prophetically about God's judgment of evil. Hebrews 12.23 says, God is judge of all. So there is this deep connection between knowing about judgment and godliness. Not about being judgmental, okay? It's not about being judgmental and being godly, but there's a connection between knowing that God will judge according to his perfect justice and that it is before the Lord we must all give account. What Enoch is prophesying about, what Jude is prophesying about, is a future guaranteed judgment that the Bible speaks about over and over again, that one day all will stand before Jesus Christ to give account for their deeds and all the things that they have said or done. This is what Jude reminds us of. The original quote in First Enoch is that he comes with he referring to God. But Jude replaces that he with the word the Lord, a term he uses specifically to refer to Jesus. What Jude is telling us is what the Bible teaches us doctrinally all throughout the New Testament. Jesus Christ will one day judge every person who has ever lived. Everyone will face the reality of judgment before the Lord. But for those who are in Christ, we have the incredible expectation and good news of forgiveness and salvation in Christ's sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead. For those who repent and believe, then the knowledge of judgment is the key to godliness. It helps keep us from sin helps remind us of what is important. It drives us to repentance. It drives us to share with others the good news. It helps us know that we don't have to have the final say in anything because God does. And so remember that fact. False teachers, they often do not care about judgment. And particularly, they don't care about how God will judge them. But I believe that there are churches and leaders in the world today who are under the judgment of God, according to the prophecy of Enoch. And if you think I'm being harsh or or a hater about it, then just read Revelation 2. See what Jesus says to churches that are no longer about him. It's his words, not mine. Now, if there's one thing you can say about every false teacher, he or she is not a man or woman who pleases God. But this is exactly what every Christian must strive to do. And the second application of this prophecy is that it reminds us that the reality of false teaching is inescapable. It is inevitable. Enoch was a godly man, but he lived, like I said already, in an age before the flood of Noah when there was such rampant sin that God decided to destroy humanity with a flood. So however bad you think it is now, it was probably just as bad when Enoch lived. It probably was just as bad as they headed towards that flood with Noah. And even though the flood worked, it wiped out most of humanity, ungodliness still flooded out of the ark back into the planet. Why? Because humans are sinners. And you know, when I was a younger Christian and a younger pastor, I used to be so disillusioned, so discouraged when I would see how much religious people would take advantage of others to their own ends to line their pockets or to further their ambitions, how, how much there would be selfishness in the church. And Jude just wants to prepare us for the real world. He says in the beginning, it would be great if he could just talk about the common faith and leave you in a state of naivety, but we live in a world filled with humans. There is nothing new under the sun. It is inevitable you will encounter people who are false teachers in a way. 
even in the church. And brothers and sisters, Jude does not want us to be crushed when we do. He doesn't want us to be, to be set astray when we do. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard. Because while false teaching is inevitable, he says judgment is too. We can rest in God's judgment. We can rest that God has got it covered, that he will do what is right. And so when we see it, instead of being crushed, we should be ready to respond. Now, here's the thing. Not responding in a way so that it dominates us, but in a way so that it doesn't. Responding by correcting, yes, and, and, and rebuking maybe, but also in turning our attention back to Christ himself, the only ultimate judge. See, this is so important because it keeps us grounded. We can't be so concerned about the problem of false teaching that we fall into the same trap as the false teachers we're trying to avoid. We end up becoming just like them because instead of being now about God, we're all about the errors and the problems and the missteps out there. No, the way that we guard against the ungodliness of false teaching is by focusing ourselves on the godliness of knowing and pleasing God. R.C. Chapman, who I talked about earlier, he once said this, It is one thing to read the Bible, choosing something that suits me, and another thing altogether to search it that I may become acquainted with God in Christ. It's about him. Godliness matters. All ungodliness leads to judgment. And that leads us to the next point. We go from the prophecy, which reminds us that it's all about God, to the profanity, which shows us more clearly how false teachers really couldn't care less about him. The profanity of false teachers, which tells us what false teachers are really thinking about. The prophecy of Enoch reminds us that as Christians, we're supposed to be about God. But what about false teachers? Okay, they're under judgment. They're ungodly. But what are they about? Okay, what are they all about? Well, Jude answers that with that word, ungodliness. Verse 15, he uses the word ungodly many times. So we're supposed to be godly. They are ungodly. Godliness is the opposite of ungodliness. That's some uh, high-level analysis, right? That's, you don't need to go to seminary to know that. But look at verse 15. This is what Jude highlights. He says, To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So there's so many times he says this word ungodly over and over again. You see it in the English. You see it in the Greek. Jude speaks about the ungodliness of these false teachers, and and, and he presents it as a charge brought against them. Look at that word. He says, to convict all the ungodly of all these things. You see, the word convict, it means to pronounce a guilty verdict. It means to kind of express and show in the Greek the charge that a person is guilty of. In the final judgment, when Christ comes, false teachers' stated crime is ungodliness. And so this idea of ungodliness is important for us to understand. If we don't look at it more closely, we're not going to get what this verse and these verses are about. But if we do understand it, it'll give us the key to seeing what Jude wants us to see about false teachers. The term for ungodliness is the term asebia in Greek. It is a term that means impiety or irreverence or profanity. Here's the main meaning of asebia. It is a vertical sort of problem. 
Okay, do you guys understand? We, we've said that sort of thing in church before, vertical versus horizontal problems, but this is a vertical problem. But sometimes I'm not sure that anyone even knows what we're talking about, right? You guys are just sitting out there, you're neither nodding nor shaking your heads, or you're just looking at me. I don't know if you really know what I mean by vertical and horizontal, so I'm going to explain it as best I can. There is a horizontal level of like morality and, and actions and what we do, and that's between us and other people, okay? That's why we call it horizontal. We're on the same level. For most of us, we experience the natural consequences of our horizontal problems pretty pretty easily, right? If you go and you do something to your sibling, then they get mad at you and they do something back, or they tell on you to your parent. If you have a problem with a coworker and you let that spill over into some sort of sin against them, then there are consequences, right? Your relationship is broken. We see that when we do things with other people, it affects us in all these ways, and yet there is a vertical aspect that we don't always see, that we don't naturally see. The vertical aspect is between us and God. Godliness, I mean ungodliness, impiety, profanity, the word Jude uses here has to do not with horizontal morality, but with a lack of reverence for the things above. That's what I mean by vertical. A vertical sort of wrongness. A problem of not even looking up. False teachers are prophesied about and they are prophesied against because of this ungodliness. Because they do not count as sacred the things of God. God himself. But instead they profane him. It's the profanity of false teachers that Jude talks about here. And when I use the word profanity, I just want to make clear I'm not talking about cussing. I don't think false teachers go up to on stage at church and start dropping F-bombs or something like that, right? And some of them do speak in crazy ways. But to profane something is to take something sacred and to treat it with irreverence and disrespect. To take what is holy and to act like it is common. And profanity is the underlying problem with false teachers, even though they don't know it. If you guys were to look in Daniel chapter 5, it's a story you may or may not be familiar with. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like. Daniel chapter 5 is the story of King Belshazzar. Okay? King Belshazzar is a guy who lived after his father had um, taken over much of the world. And he was kind of like the rich, spoiled kid who became king. And one day, King Belshazzar is having a party. In Daniel 5, I'm going to read it to you, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This guy, Belshazzar, he takes the holy vessels that God designed for his own tabernacle and temple that were taken when Nebuchadnezzar took over Jerusalem, and he takes them out of storage, and he brings them to his drunken party— this time of debauchery, and he says, let's just party on these things. Let's drink out of them, let's eat out of them, let's use them, and then let's praise false idols while we do it. And you know what happens? Maybe you don't. The story goes on, and a hand, a floating hand, a fiery floating hand appears and starts to write on the wall. 
And again, just, just, this is the truth. Okay. This happened in history. They're sitting there drunken in a stupor doing these irreverent things. And this hand appears on the wall and it writes a message. It says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And the people are shocked out of their minds. The, the, the king who is the ruler of civilization, as far as he knows, he goes white. His blood drains from his face. He is scared. His wits are gone. He's shocked. Why? They shouldn't have been shocked, right? They knew that the vessels were from the temple of God. That's why they brought him out. That was the whole point. Go get those things from God's temple in Jerusalem. But they're shocked when we read the passage. Why? Because they knew what they were doing. But they didn't think God was really watching or caring or that he'd ever do anything about it. The Bible tells us that very night, that very night, King Belshazzar loses his life and his kingdom. And this is what ungodliness is. This is what asebia, ungodliness, profanity refers to, no respect for God. No real reverence before his word. No real concern about whether they are truly pleasing the Lord. Make no mistake, false teachers in the church are always about religious stuff. That's why they're hanging around the church. All about God's words, so to speak. Always about Christianese. Always speaking Bible language. But Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of all, the judge of the living and the dead, who will one day return and set things right, well, his reality couldn't be further from their minds. It's profanity, and you will see it come out. This is what Jude says. You will see it eventually come forth in their lives. Notice how the profanity comes out. Jude says, these false teachers have ungodly deeds. They do things in an ungodly way, and they have ungodly words. There are three levels of profanity he gives us. The deeds, the manner, and the words. Ungodliness reveals itself at many levels. And if we take it seriously, it might not change who you're naturally kind of attracted to or drawn to, but I hope it would change who we choose to follow. First, ungodliness can be seen in a person's deeds, whether what he or she does is right and good before God. Uh, First Peter 2, Peter says, Beloved, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There are good works that we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to fight against the passions of the flesh, to abstain from the works of the flesh, and be rich instead in good works. And yet the person who is ungodly, who profanes God in his heart, will eventually start to do the things he knows God says not to do. He will find clever excuses and justifications for it, but ungodly deeds show the profanity of false teachers. And this is kind of an easy one, right? This is a softball. If you're kind of like going through the pop quiz of how do I know someone's a false teacher, this is like the easiest, slowest pitch. You guys know the cult leader who's like, okay, everyone here abstain from sex except I get all of the wives, right? That's like the most common example. It actually happens. You guys know about the person who is embezzling the money for himself out of the organization that he founded, right? These are kind of the easy ones to see. But what about the next two? They can be somewhat harder for us at times. Jude says ungodliness can also be seen in the manners, a person's manners. The way a person conducts themselves matters to God. Jude says that the false teachers do things in an ungodly way, but a person who lives then before the face of God acts in a way that would please him. 
You see, the ungodly false teachers think that if their content is right, then their conduct doesn't matter. And that's false teaching. We need to understand and recognize that there are things we're called to do and to say, but there are also ways we're called to do them. Again, in First Peter, now chapter 3, Peter writes, If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, stories are a dime a dozen of a person who portrays himself one way on the stage or on TV or on the radio, but those who are close to him, his family, his friends, his coworkers, they have no testimony of godliness but ungodly conduct. And yet they cover it up because of the success or the excitement of what's going on. But God always knows. And so for us, in an applicable way, when you see that person who is so convinced they have something worth saying, yet has no semblance of gentleness and respect, realize that this ungodly manner of living is not simply about how you appear before others. It really is about reverence for God. Someone who doesn't care how they go about serving God someone who doesn't care about being gentle and respectful and meek and mild like Christ is someone who isn't thinking about Christ all that much. Ungodly conduct, ungodly manners are a sign of a false teacher. And then thirdly, the profanity of the ungodly is seen in the words that come out of their mouths. Again, in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Jude is very concerned with the words of Christians. We should never use our words to slander, as Pastor Kenny talked about a few weeks back. And when you see then that person, that Christian, who cannot help but respond to personal attack with personal attack, don't follow them. Hey, don't be like them. Don't put them on a pedestal. Don't make excuses for them. I'm not saying that they can't be a Christian and struggle with their words. But if someone is teaching you to talk and speak in that way, then they are a false teacher. When you see that kind of person, turn the other way. Rebuke them with gentleness if you have the opportunity. When you see a person who cares less about being truthful and more about being effective, then again, turn the other way. Walk away. Our words must be words that build up, that are wholesome to the church, that give grace and truth to all who would hear. This is what the Bible says a Christian leader especially ought to do. Jude tells us that false teachers are profane. They make a mockery of God in their hearts and then in their lives. They do religious things apart from true concern about him. But on the flip side, those who would lead the church must be people of godly deeds, godly means, and godly words. And and I speak this to myself because obviously I'm the one standing here upstage, not you. It's a high calling, but that's exactly the point. James says, Not many of you should desire to become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's what every true servant of Christ, every true quote-unquote leader of the church 
needs to have at the forefront of their mind all the time, that we will be judged more strictly. And so if I say something, if I make a mistake, if I, if I say something on stage that is wrong, then it's my duty to correct that and tell you, even if it would make me look somewhat foolish. And if I find out, if we find out as pastors about sin in someone's life who is leading the church, we must confront it and remind them of judgment, even if it will be painful and cause us or cause others to think that we are haters or we're judgmental. And if we see a leader in the church who is waging war with their words in a manner that, that curses those made in the image of God, that does not reflect rightly on him, then we have to speak up and warn them, even if it makes us unpopular. Why? Because those who would teach and lead the church are under greater strictness, greater judgment, greater concern from God. It's a serious and scary thing. And so when you're out there in the wild, right, you're watching videos, you're reading posts, you're reading articles, don't follow a person who doesn't have a healthy fear of these things. Someone who shows that they are not a profaner of God, but one who is seeking after godliness. See, false teachers, they play fast and loose with the word of God. I've seen it so often, and you know, I don't want to name names, but I've seen it. I've watched videos. I've read the things where, where they'll quote Bible verses to make you feel a certain way, to get you enraged about something, to get you on their side about this issue, but you go and read that verse, and that's not what the verse said at all. That verse is taken completely out of context. That verse may sometimes even be saying the opposite if you read it in the whole chapter. But it doesn't matter because they have a point to make. False teachers will manipulate and omit and straight up mislead you to make their point, to influence you their, their way. They will sin to get what they want. They will lie to protect themselves. And they'll do it with no remorse or repentance. And the question is why? Why are they doing all these things? I said it. It's because they're ungodly. Because they don't really think about God. They are profane. You see, in the calculation of false teachers' minds, what God thinks comes very, very late in the order of operations. You'll see it in their actions. So what do we do then? The Bible says we contend for the faith given once for all. Okay, I want this to be practical. I don't want this to just be theoretical knowledge in your mind. When you are faced with these things and you're wondering what they're about, whether they're in the church, online, outside the church, someone you're talking to over coffee about the Bible, what do you do when someone tries to convince you or a friend of something and they tell you a bunch of things that contradict Scripture? Ask them about it. Say, hey, I'm reading it. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible is saying. If they quote Bible verses... It's incumbent upon you to go look them up. Read them. Find out what it is that they're claiming the Bible says. Find out if that really is what God says. And if you look it up and it doesn't seem to be what God is saying, then by all means be humble, but be careful. Bring it up. Speak the truth in love. This is a danger to the church, and maybe more so today than ever before with the proliferation of voices claiming to speak for God. Whether out there or even in here at Zoe, contend for the faith. But if you feel unequipped, unable to contend, well, the second best option, run away. Fight or flight, but don't be taken in. The profanity of the ungodly is that they do not care about God. It shows in their lives. And that truth leads us finally to our last verse in this section, verse 16, which shows us the picture of false teachers. The picture of false teachers. 
which shows us what we must avoid. Have you guys ever played Where's Waldo? <laughs> I see some blank, blank stares, which is surprising. Uh, where's Waldo? I'm not sure if that's the correct way to say it. It's not playing Where's Waldo. It's perhaps have you ever read Where's Waldo? Though again, there's no words really, so you're not really reading a book. Let me explain. If you don't know, Where's Waldo is a book series, very large books, easy to see, uh, where you're tasked with finding Waldo um, and a bunch of various items on this large page. And if you were to go look at the page, it's like the busiest picture that's ever been drawn in the history of uh, creation, right? They draw it like, like, it looks like a million items on this page and it's this huge book. So you're trying to find all these things, right? It's a book where you try to find the hidden objects in the page. Now, can you imagine for a moment trying to complete the challenges of Where's Waldo without the key in the corner telling you what you're supposed to look for? Trying to find all these things without actually seeing a picture of what that one yellow sock looks like or what that one uh, guy who is, um, drinking a cup of water looks like. It would be pretty much impossible. And so if you're the kind of person who would be frustrated by that, then you'll be happy to see that while Jude doesn't go into the specific false doctrines of the church, here he gives us a very practical picture of what false teachers often look like. As he heads towards the closing section of this book, he shows us many pictures, actually, of false teachers. Kind of like that Where's Waldo page. He shows us these are the things that if you see, you know you're looking at something bad. If you're hoping Jude would be practical, just tell us what to do and we'll listen, then, then this is for you. Because ungodliness starts in the heart. It profanes and disrespects God, but it always comes out in life. And eventually, if you're looking, you'll see it. It's popular these days to talk about red flags, right? You guys know that people love talking about red flags. So that's what we're going to do. We'll talk about verse 16, and we're going to see it as a list of red flags to look out for so that you might not be led away from godliness and God by false teachers. Let's read verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. We're going to look at these red flags individually, but briefly, not just for things to be aware of out there, but of course for things to be aware of in our own lives as well. First, false teachers, the ungodly, they are grumblers and malcontents. Okay, they, they come as a package. They're kind of synonyms. The word here for malcontent is a word that, that really talks about someone who complains about their fate. Um, in the Old Testament, the Greek word in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament was used to talk about how the people of Israel were really mad that God had taken them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness where they had no uh, veggies to eat, right? That's what it talks about. They're complaining about their fate. You know, um, the Bible talks about discontentment and contentment a lot. Paul said, this is one of those verses you, you just need to memorize because if you don't, you're going to forget it when you need it most. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. But false teachers have no time for such scriptures. They don't care that that's what the Bible says. Discontentment is the game of the ungodly. The Bible tells us it's a serious thing to God to be a person who lives life full of complaints. And again, I speak to myself as much as anyone. It can feel very natural to me, just so easy to talk about what I don't like, things I disagree with, uh, what I find not that interesting or compelling about a church or a teacher or a situation, just telling all the things that don't suit me right. The Bible says this is a red flag. 
in my life and in the life of others. Constant grumbling and unhappiness with everything is a sign that something is off. Now, there is a place for growth and change and correction. There's even a place for lamenting bad things in the world, just talking to God about your complaints. But according to Jude, that can happen without grumbling and being malcontent. Because what Jude is talking about here is an unhappiness, ultimately, with God. It's motivated by discontentment. It is a sin. If you're a parent, let me kind of illustrate this for you. If you're a parent, you're given the role and responsibility to help your children grow, right? To help them change. And, and, and honestly, if your children at 18 are exactly the way they were at three, then you have failed, okay? They're supposed to change. They're supposed to grow. They're supposed to be something different than what they were. And so you need to think about the ways you can influence your kids, the ways that they need to, to change and grow. You need to think about the ways you can discipline and even correct them. But the Bible tells us that this is a privilege, that it's a blessing, that you need to contend for the well-being of your children, to work hard on them, to help them. But show me the verse that says it is a godly thing to complain about your family. Now, some of you wish there was one of those verses, right? It doesn't exist. Contending for the faith does not mean complaining about the church. That's a hard one for natural-born haters like me. But as far as teachers go, don't be influenced by those who feed you discontentment. Okay, I, I know that maybe isn't as pointed as I need it to be, but, but that's what I want to say to you. Don't be influenced by those who feed you discontentment, who are telling you, look at all the bad things going on. Be unhappy about it. Teach you to grumble rather than pray. Who say that prayer is not enough. People who tell you to be anxious rather than trust. People who want you to be tossed up to and fro by the ways, riled up into something rather than secure and trusting in Christ, the Lord, Master, and Judge. It's a red flag. Secondly, following their own sinful desires. Literally, what he says here is going the way of their own passions. Okay, going the way of their own passions. Um, again, this is something that is just everywhere in our society. If you watch Disney movies at all over the past 30 years, you know that the number one thing you're supposed to do, according to Disney, is follow your conscience. No, follow your heart. Okay, conscience was just Pinocchio, and it wasn't that popular, so they changed it to follow your heart. Follow your heart. Now, following your heart is not always a bad thing, okay? You sometimes should do what you're passionate about. But if follow your heart means go the way of your own passions and desires, and this is false teaching. That's what the Bible tells us. It's a red flag. You need to be careful of those who always have to do what they want to do. Now, this is kind of an aside, but since we're talking about red flags, about leadership, about bad leadership, I want to say something to those of you who are younger and who are not yet married, especially those of you who are ladies. If you're looking for a spouse, especially a husband, a man who always does what he wants to do and is led by his passions and desires is not the kind of man that you should follow. Okay, and, and, and maybe you don't see it. You don't realize it right now. But I've been a pastor now for a while, and I talk to people, and that thing which seemed so exciting when you were dating is the very reason why this person has become an oppressor in your life. A man who simply goes the way of his passions and desires is not a man who should be trusted to follow. 
or for you to follow. A man who is only self-controlled when he is not angry or depressed or lustful is a red flag. So he needs to be led not by his desires, but by his convictions. Not by what makes him feel good, but by what he believes is right. The same thing for leaders in the church. Thirdly, Jude says they are loud-mouthed boasters. Now, literally in the Greek, the word here or the verse here says their mouths speak big words. Okay, their mouths speak big words. They talk a big game. You guys know what I'm talking about? You need to beware of the man or woman who is always telling you about their accomplishments. Always telling you what he used to be, all the things that he has done. Always telling you how much he gave up to follow Jesus. Now, again, I want this to be very real and practical and very honest for a moment. Okay, for myself. When I hear about some Christian teacher and I go to their website and their website is ericlauministries.com. And I look at their bio and it's talking about all the amazing things that this person has done. All of the, uh, the, the accomplishments and the ways in which they've been celebrated. All of the things that they have earned themselves. This long bio that seems to be written by them. It makes me cringe. And not just cringe, it makes me worried. Listen to what some true teachers of the church have said on this topic. I'm just going to read these quotes, okay? Paul. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Augustine, one of the fathers of the church, he said, should anyone ask me what the first thing is of religion, I will tell them that the first, second, and third are all the same. Humility. Jonathan Edwards, he says, the eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home, sees so much evil in his own heart, and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with the hearts of others. He looks at himself with humility. J.C. Ryle says, I am persuaded the more light we have, the more we see our own sinfulness, the nearer we get to heaven, the more we are clothed with humility. The Bible the, the, the true teachers of the church, they know because Jesus Christ himself was humble that the leaders of the church must be humble. And yet, for some reason, I look at the church and it's all about people who are speaking a big game. All about people who have a lot of things to tell you about what they've done, how great they are, how much it means to follow them. We live in a world that year by year, day by day, TikTok by TikTok is becoming more and more about self-promotion. And it is nothing more than an appeal to the flesh. You can want to be successful. You can want to work hard. You ought to work hard for God and not for man. But there is no place for big talkers in the kingdom of God. And I feel like the church, we just lost it in the, when it comes to this. We just make so many excuses. We hear people talking this way. We see it all the time. We see people promoting themselves and we just don't care because it seems to fit in with our worldview and what we would like to happen. The Bible says don't follow those people. It's a huge red flag. Be careful. One more quote. Charles Spurgeon said this. And listen closely. You are not mature if you have a high esteem of yourself. He who boasts in himself is but a babe in Christ, if indeed he be in Christ at all. Young Christians may think much of themselves. Growing Christians think themselves nothing. Mature Christians know that they are less than nothing. This is what Jude is telling us. Finally, the last picture, the last red flag, 
is showing favoritism to gain advantage. False teachers show favoritism to gain advantage. They use partiality for their own purposes. And the Bible is clear that partiality is a sin. And I think we can all get behind that, right? You shouldn't be uh, against uh, poor people because they have less to give. You shouldn't be against people because of how they look or whatever, or because they're, they're um, not the age group that you're targeting for your church. But we need to see here that partiality is also a danger. Nowadays, we hear a term thrown around a lot that I really never heard as a young man. Um, it's the term grooming, okay? I'm not going to talk too much about it. I know that there are some kids here with us. Um, but it's a term used to talk about abuse and how abusers will groom their victims. Um, as a pastor, unfortunately, I've had to learn about the prevalence of certain types of abuse in the church and in the world in general. And as part of the training to hopefully prevent some of these things, you learn a little bit about this behavior, grooming. Now, what is grooming, okay? People talk about it all the time. Uh, you can read about it on Twitter. What is it? Well, Jude is talking about it right here showing favoritism to gain advantage. And if you study these things at all, you'll find out that those people who do want to abuse and oppress others, they will groom someone. They'll find someone who is a little bit isolated from the group, and they will show them special attention. They will make sure to to give them special gifts or messages, things that sometimes may or may not be inappropriate. There is this special partiality shown to gain advantage making them come to trust and rely and depend on someone who would ultimately abuse them. This is what Judah's talking about on the spiritual scale. You see, if we're going to be discerning, if we're actually going to be any better at this after Jude, we need to know that there's a difference between a person who cares for you and a person who makes you feel special. Now, sometimes those things overlap. But just because someone makes you feel special doesn't mean they actually care. Is a person trying to make you feel special because they want something for, from you, whether that is your money or your allegiance or your whatever, that is a huge red flag. Beware the teacher who tells you what you want to hear to lead you where he wants you to go. Well, you might wonder, well, isn't that just like teaching? Isn't that what all teachers, pastors are doing? No, far safer is the teacher who tells you what you need to hear to point you where God wants you to go. The profanity of false teachers comes out in their lives, and Jude paints for us these pictures so that we can look at the chaos of the world, the chaos sometimes of the church, and the internet, and all of the things, the voices out there, and we can do it like we're doing a Where's Waldo, where we can see the things we need to see, and then turn the other way. We'll end here. All false teachers are ungodly. They're under the judgment of God, but they don't really care. And so it eventually shows up in their lives. And what Jude is saying is that in order to contend for the faith, we need to care about God and godliness. I'll leave you with the story of R.C. Chapman when he first became a pastor. When R.C. was deciding to go into ministry, uh, he had some naysayers and some doubters among his friends. Um, and, you know, he lived in a time when there weren't, like, microphones and speakers and stuff. So in order to be a preacher, you have to be a strong speaker, right? You weren't, if you were really soft-spoken, it would be hard. And according to those who are familiar with him, when he first decided to go become a pastor, friends of his said, you'll never make a preacher. You'll never make a good preacher. And in hearing that, this is what R.C. Chapman said. He said, there are many who preach, but not so many who live Christ. My great aim shall be to live Christ. 
And to some extent, both R.C. Chapman's naysayers and R.C. were right. He never became the greatest preacher. His sermons weren't written down or recorded or given to us. He wasn't this dynamic public speaker. But he did aim to live Christ. And in the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who we talked about before, Charles Spurgeon said R.C. Chapman was the saintliest man he ever knew. And from his conversion until his death at the ripe age of 99, he was a leader who lived Christ and led others to do the same. What are we to look for? Those who are content, those who are self-controlled, those who are humble, those who show no partiality for gain, but instead are committed to the truth for the glory of God and committed because of Christ to the good of his church. To those who care about God's word, his will, his agenda. To those who know that there is a judgment, who don't shy away from that, who know that there is judgment for us as well. And ultimately, though, to those who know that Christ the Lord, who will come to judge, is also the one who came to save. Hebrews 9. The Bible says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I know that it's kind of a downer message, and all sorts of things to be aware of, all sorts of things to be maybe kind of scared of. But the Bible says that for those who look to Christ, when he comes again in that judgment and all false teaching is wiped away forever, those who are not perfect, who are not righteous in ourselves, who maybe struggle with ungodliness, but we have repented and put our faith in Christ, we will not be judged, but we will be saved because we eagerly wait for him. And so may we then, as a church, preach and live Christ. And may Christ himself, the way, the truth, and the life, guard us against all ungodliness. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, Lord, that even as we consider these things, and we want to grow in discernment, and we want to be wise, and we want to be uh, aware that our focus would not simply remain on the problems around us, but on the solution, who is Christ, our Lord, Master, Judge, and for those who believe, our Savior. So as we come now to this time of response to your word, before we take communion together as a church, would you help us to look at our own lives? If there are areas where we have been ungodly, where we have been like the false teachers and and, and profaning your name and not considering that the most important thing for us as your creatures is to know and please you, would we repent of that? And would we here who are Christians rejoice together in the gospel that Jesus Christ lived the life we could never live, that he died the death we deserve, and that he rose again victorious from the grave? Lord, help us. Help us to repent. Help us to believe. And help us to rejoice in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.